It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, catch a jolt from my electrode. I'm Joe McCormick. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And our usual host, Jonathan Strickland, is not with us today. He is on vacation. But we have joining us again for part two, a special guest co-host, Robert Lamb. Say hi, Robert. Hey, uh, yeah, great to still be here. And I guess I'll continue to be here until we finish talking about monsters. Right. I hope Which so. is wonderful. Do you want to briefly <laughs> introduce yourself again? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you missed, uh, missed my introduction on the, the last episode, I am... Uh, co-host of the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast, and I blog at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and uh, we also do some videos here and there, um, including the Monster Science uh, series that uh, goes up on the How Stuff Works YouTube uh, page and uh, and on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and that's all about uh, unnatural creatures, monsters, 
the natural world of biology and science and where those two kind of cross over and what we can learn by comparing them. Yeah. Uh, it furthermore stars Mr. or Dr. I'm sorry, Anton Jessup, um, oh, yes. who is yes. who is one of my favorite humans who has Pay ever him the respect. dumped a lot of blood on me. So, yeah, that, that <laughs> oh, happened. That once. did happen, didn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, and of course, you helped out with the most recent uh, season. If, yeah. If yeah. It, so far, you have to kind of look uh, closely uh, to, to see the artifacts. But you are our, our resident uh, Oh, VHS Spectre. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, so if you want to see me um, being creepy in the background of some videos, then, uh, then I mean, that's not the only reason you should watch them. They're they're (laughs) very excellent in their own right. As long as they watch them, I I don't care. (laughs) Go go there for that sole reason. Keep it on mute, even. All right, so I'm going to be uh, frank and admit that we initially just planned to do one podcast with Robert about the future of monsters, but we got to talking about monsters and realized we had way too much to say about them. Yeah, uh, yeah, we have like 10 pages of notes here. Um, <laughs> so we so we got through about half of it last time. Um, and during that last podcast, we covered what monsters are and what they mean in our culture and, and a little bit of the history of how we have, I mean, not the three of us sitting here, but humans in general have explored their their fears and anxieties through monsters throughout the ages. Right. So today we're actually going to speculate a little bit about what the monsters of the future are, what is going to terrify our our future generations. But I think first we should do just a real quick refresher on what we talked about last time. And I'd say the driving point of our last episode was that monsters are not arbitrary and they don't exist in a vacuum they're a product of culture and especially of social change and anxiety and of technology. Mm-hmm. Would you all say that's right? Oh, yes. indeed. I mean, they're symbolically powerful entities, even if uh, even if one is just creating a, a monster on the fly for the, the world's cheapest horror film, uh, you know, with little or no philosophical intent, you're still playing on traditions of monsters, monsters that have built up in our in our varying cultures over the over thousands of years in folklore and myth and then in fiction. And uh, and here we are today still making them up over and over again. Yeah. And so last time we talked about the the seven theses about the meaning of monsters from the English professor Jeffrey Jerome Cohen. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the more important of those, I think. One of them was the idea of the mixing of categories that a monster very often occurs at a, a boundary of classification. It, mm-hmm. It's a confusion or mixing of different classes that shouldn't be together. And you see that all the time in monsters. So you see the, the beast man, you know, it's half animal, half human, or you see the living dead that mm-hmm. crosses the boundary of life and death, or you see the human machine. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. all kinds of strange creatures like this. We also mentioned the xenomorph. It seems part biological, part mechanical. Yeah, it's like what orange Julius, right? Is it orange juice <laughs> or is it milk? I, I know how to treat orange juice. I know how to treat milk. But this unholy combination of the two throws me for a loop. Together yeah. it is monstrous. <laughs> right. And so because we can't apply our usual uh, categorical system of, of treatment to these Things we don't know how to deal with them, and they're frightening. Uh, one of the other things was that the monster polices the borders of the possible. It sort of uh, guards it's, the boundaries. Uh, right, right. It is both a transgressor. It, it's doing things that that we cannot do as polite members of society, and it's furthermore punishing human transgressors. Right. Uh, it's saying stay on the path, like like don't go out into the woods, don't feed something after midnight mm-hmm. uh, yeah you know right. and it, yeah it could be any kind of violation it could punish uh too much intellectual curiosity mm-hmm. or physically going to a place you're not supposed to go crossing taboos anything like that 
uh, very often like ritual taboos. Mm-hmm. You know, you do the wrong ritual and uh oh, here comes <laughs> a demon. One of the other theses is that very often the monster sort of represents the other that it's difference embodied and that this can play a metaphorical relationship with others in society, both the the treatment of the other and the fear of being the other. Right. And then finally, I would say an important one is that the monster has something to do with desire. It's not just scary, but it's also attractive because it's associated with the forbidden and the, the not allowed. That's probably the same thing as forbidden, huh? It's a, it's a good rephrase. Of that I, I word. like that yeah. idea as, a, as an alternate horror movie title because yeah. I think the forbidden has been taken, but the, you could but call it the, the not, not allowed. allowed, the not allowed zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because it's associated with that, it's also associated as with it's I think sexy. we said, yeah. said last time uh-huh. the no no pleasures, right? <laughs> exactly. And so there's a there's a desire associated with the monster, and it's sort of a desire to be the monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you see the, uh, I was just thinking, you know, about the outsider monsters that often kind of make, uh, you know, kind of make weapons out of their, uh, their imperfections and their flaws. It's, yeah. it's kind of like I'm, uh, the, the things that make me feel weak and beat up and, and outside of society and the monster becomes an elevation. And, uh, you know, so, so they're, they're desirable characters from, from a number of different ways, be yeah. it their freedom or their, I mean, all, I think a lot of times it is about freedom. Sure, sure. And I, I think that especially starting with things like like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, and getting into all of the, the youth culture monster television shows that are happening right now, there's there's a whole lot of these monsters being very sexy in, in not a forbidden way, but in a like like superpower kind of way. Yeah. It's, there's a power mm-hmm. in, in having that freedom, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and so one of the last things we talked about in the last episode was we just looked a little bit at the history of monster trends. And so we looked at Frankenstein perhaps being a reaction to enlightenment science and philosophy, uh, a fear that we were going too far with intellectual curiosity and experimentation, uh, maybe Lovecraft representing a response to new science in the early 20th century, to relativity, to uh, to, of course, the First World War and to quantum theory. Uh, we looked at the atomic age where we had all these giant mutated bugs and stuff that are a reaction very much obviously to nuclear testing and the power of the atom, mm-hmm. uh, the social upheavals of the 60s and 70s and how they manifested in horror. And then finally, this kind of e-horror phase uh, that it's that a had... direct response to the new technologies that were coming that we have been coming out uh, in this our Internet age. Right. The angry ghost is in the telephone. Yeah. It's going to get you through the wires. Yes. The wires will not save you. No. <laughs> okay, but now we want to make the shift and talk about what we think the future of monsters really will be. What, what is the scariest thing to the next generation? In 30 or 50 years, what will the horror movies be about? And I think the the place we got to start, because it's the most obvious one, is robots, right? Robots oh, and, and artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Artificial intelligence, whether that's embodied in a robot body or separate in some kind of machine in the cloud. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. I mean, there are our technological children. Right. And yeah. and so like like actual children, they're they're terrifying because they're <laughs> they're our future. We've put a certain amount into them, uh, you know, either either via nurture or nature. And then it's the same way with with technology, basically. And uh, yeah, so you can't help but have a have a, a, a bit of apprehension about where it's going. Right. And one of Jerome's theses, actually one of the ones we didn't just mention, was the idea that monsters are very much our offspring. Mm-hmm. They're, they're our children. And 
much like our real children, they sort of look back at us and ask why they were created. They want to know. They want us to give them a purpose. And a lot, we, we don't necessarily have anything good to tell them sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this makes a lot of sense to me as the future of monsters. But I do want to raise a strange objection that I think we can maybe rectify, which is that robots, killer robots, no matter how menacing they are, aren't all that immediately scary to me for some reason. I So we've seen it a million times. Science fiction is full of dangerous and threatening artificial intelligence. You've got HAL in 2001. You've got Skynet in the Terminator series. You've got the, the big machine complex in the Matrix. I guess it would be the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- none of this really frightens me. And so I want to make a kind of distinction. And if you all want to offer alternative terminology, please do. I, this is probably not the best way to phrase it, but I'm just trying to explain an idea. There's a difference between a merely conceivable monster and a plausible monster. So a conceivable monster is basically any monster, any monster you can picture and place in a scenario, and and the evil artificial intelligence would fit this. Uh, So it could be a Terminator, could be whatever. But by contrast, a plausible monster is not necessarily one I find scientifically or physically plausible, but it feels relevant to my life. So it actually scares me. It follows me home from the theater. I might be alone in my house at night and worry about this monster. And one of the strange things is it almost sometimes seems inversely related to the amount of plausibility of the monster. Uh, for example, I don't personally believe in ghosts. I don't think they exist. But ghosts are a very plausible monster to me. In my house at night, oh, yeah, there might be a ghost there. Totally. I'm freaked out. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I find Terminators, at least in theory, quite possible. So you could build a cybernetic creature that's designed to kill. That idea doesn't really frighten me that much. Hmm. And I wonder why that is. Well, and this is this will probably just as be as much of a sort of ambiguous uh, way of looking at it, but it it kind of comes down to uh, to the question: um, Is there room in the shadows for this particular monster? You know, yeah, it's kind of and, and not the necessarily the the actual optical shadows, but you know, <laughs> is there is there enough mystery in your life or in the world to accommodate uh, that creature at least at two in the morning or at least on that dark street or when you're walking through the woods? And it's mm. it's kind of hard to nail down exactly, you know, which ones uh, fit into that category. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I do think that this fear of of yours, and I think it's a pretty common way of of looking at different categories of horror movies, goes back to the fear of the unknown, which is one of those very basic ones. Because um, you can understand basically how a Terminator would be put together and how a sufficiently advanced artificial intelligence could totally go like a global Hannibal Lecter on all of us. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we all have those days, so we get it. Um, but but ghosts are, are, are that unknown factor, that, that thing that is in the shadows, especially if you don't believe in them, because they're yeah. just completely inexplicable. That's really interesting. I like that y'all both brought up the shadows because that might be part of it. And I wonder if as we move further down the road towards cybernetics and towards uh, artificial intelligence and and really powerful, adaptable, all-purpose robotics, that something like that actually would become scarier, not just because it's more pervasive, but because there are places in the shadows where it could plausibly hide. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, if you imagine a world in which 
there is tons of private research into artificial intelligence and robotics. You don't know what that weird lab down the street is doing. Sure, sure. And uh, as that kind of technology becomes more ubiquitous, I mean, not that it's not already bordering on ubiquity, given that, I mean, how many of us have cell phones in our pockets or (laughs) or fitness trackers on our wrists or et cetera? Um, I mean, how many electronic devices do you own in your home right now? Can you even count them? Um, and, And when they're all speaking to each other, Maybe that will become or, you know, like the more advanced they become, perhaps it will become more shadowy, the less that uh, the the average consumer is able to understand about those objects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at some point, will we find ourselves in our kitchen with our robotic kitchen robot? And it's not so much the fear of the killer robot, but maybe the fear of hey, what if this killer robot catches some sort of killer virus off of yeah. uh, the ubiquitous internet, you know? I mean, well, yeah, the mystery becomes the the inner psyche of the robot. Mm-hmm. As the mm-hmm. robot's mind becomes more and more complex and difficult for us to understand, it becomes more and more like an animal, like a human, like mm-hmm. a monster that that might have strange motivations that you can't grapple. Well, it reminds me of a line in uh in William Gibson's uh, Neuromancer, where he uh, he makes the comparison, uh, one of the characters, of course, makes a deal essentially with a really powerful AI, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's uh, somebody comments that uh, that essentially it's a deal with the devil, yeah. and it's something that that was impossible for for centuries and centuries. It was a purely a human creation, but then eventually technology came around and made it possible uh, in reality. Mm. So. I'm not sure how where that lays into it because you can still, of course, be afraid of the of the devil in the night. You can be afraid of the ghost uh, that's just outside of the shadow of your nightlight. But then the idea of reaching a point technologically where we can manifest those things in reality. Yeah, yeah, I, I can very plausibly see that becoming the new the new ghost. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah, There's con- also consciousness is is certainly mysterious. So well, definitely, yeah. and that ties into the next point I want to make about artificial intelligence, which is that this could relate to another one of Cohen's theses we talked about: the idea that sometimes the monster is a thing that is persecuted or oppressed and looks back on us in judgment. Right. And so I want to bring up something we've talked about on this podcast before, which is the idea of artificial intelligence becoming sentient. I think we'll always be haunted by this question, right? If you design something that seems to be intelligent, according to the the idea lingering behind the Turing test, you know, Alan Turing's original question, Mm -hmm. should you basically have to assume that this thing actually is sentient, that it possesses a subjective experience, that something is happening inside the mind of this computer you've created that's not just external it's not just coming out to you it's not just behavior yeah yeah there's such a thing as what it's like to be this computer and you are now enslaving it yeah yeah it raises the question that once we have this fabulous internet of things like is my toaster really happy making toast should i force it into toastitude well i mean we have such a problem understanding human consciousness so i mean the mind body problem comes basically down to the situation that you you look at the organic brain and you say all right i see how i see how it works i see what's going on there more or less and then you have the mind and you can look at the mind and say all right i I can sort of see what's going on there but then when you try and compare the two you say well this doesn't match up with this this does not seem like it's not one-to-one right yeah yeah, it's not a one-to-one match so if we can't even identify that uh, that connection 
uh, with our own mind and brain, then what chance do we have in looking at uh, uh, circuitry in the future and saying, oh, well, that's consciousness right there, because we can't even really point to our own heads and say that. Right. It's really hard. I mean, if you can't find a piece of tissue in the brain that mm-hmm. you, you realize is magic, then <laughs> what says a computer can't accomplish that same subjective experience? It's a little terrifying. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no one, no one wants to be that guy. No. So. Yeah, and and uh, and it it is interesting in the in the way that it's uh, you know it, it turns the, the 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 camera back on ourselves too. Right. You know, it's like the the fear of the other kind of becomes the fear of of ourselves. Um, one robot human uh, uh, conflict that I that I always think about in uh, in these uh, situations. Uh, comes around to uh, the the book Dune, of course. Oh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you have in the backstory the whole um, uh, Butlerian uh, jihad, where uh, humans and machines uh, had this you know this big conflict. And and I've read that uh, that Frank Herbert's original thinking along these lines was less this physical conflict between man and machine, between humans and, and thinking machines, but uh, but more about what what does it do when we depend upon all this technology and we depend on thinking machines? How does it change the human experience? Do we end up thinking more like machines? Yeah. Um, which certainly gets into the whole uh, one of the the key areas in uh, in, in in computers and uh, in, in human computer interaction is is you know the continual struggle to well let's let's try and make make it a situation where the machines are more human like, and I don't have to become more machine like to use them. Yeah. Let's actually talk about that. Um, yeah. the, the the concept of of cybernetics oh, and yes. and those those actual combinations and the the horrific idea of of losing your humanity by being uh, by by willfully becoming part machine. Right. Well, there's the very simple version of this, which is that you imagine that we have cybernetics that increase our physical capabilities. That's sort of you know the brute force version. You yeah, have yeah. an Exoskeleton. You have a robot arm. It, I'd it, take a robot on. I mean, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, we, I think we did a poll on the podcast before. Right? <laughs> yeah. Robert, yay or nay? Would you robot cut off arm? your arm to get a stronger robot arm? I have to cut one off to get yeah. a robot? Yeah. Can I just add a third robot arm? No, you have to cut off your arm or you can get a stronger robot arm. I'd, I'd have to see a demo first, <laughs> really. <laughs> very wise. The younger me would say yes, because I was very obsessed with robotic arms when I was a kid, yeah. you know, because you'd see that scene in Terminator where he's right. trying out in front of the mirror. But Yeah, yeah. Right, but that's the, the simple version that we just – don't think about all that deeply. Okay, mm-hmm. it's just augmenting physical capabilities. Sure, that's one thing cybernetics could do. But it increasingly looks like cybernetics are going to have to involve direct connections with the brain, which is now widely accepted to be the seat of the self, as we were just talking about in the in the last point. So we've discussed on the podcast before how brain-computer interfaces allow all kinds of crazy stuff. We've talked about how um, monkeys can control computer cursors with their brains. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you've read about this, Robert, mm-hmm. but yeah, so uh, they don't need to use their hands at all. They can just look at a computer screen with the wire going into their head and move the cursor around. Uh, the same thing has been done with uh, allowing people suffering from quadriplegia to be able to move a robot arm to feed themselves yeah. with a brain implant. Yeah. There was actually just something I read about the other day. It was published in Science Translational Medicine by Sellers, Ryan, and Hauser, and then reported in New Scientist. And they described how, uh, just the other day, a a non-invasive brain-computer interface allowed a 68-year-old man with locked-in syndrome, so that means he's aware but he can't use any of his muscles, uh, following a brainstem stroke, to spell out written messages to family members with brain activity alone. Wow. So... 
communicating through computers using only your brain. And I, I think this is only going to continue and get more efficient mm-hmm. and more deeply involved oh, sure. biologically. Yeah. And, and it's and it's so wonderful for, for people who do have a traumatic brain injury or or traumatic bodily injury or who, who otherwise need this kind of technology in order to have a, a quote unquote normal life. Oh, certainly right. I'm mentioning that in the in the context of a monster podcast. I don't want to demonize technology. That's, oh, absolutely that's not. I mean, super welcome news. Yeah, yeah. That is rad. Extremely rad. But what happens when brain computer interfaces or BCIs get so good that healthy people want to use them to browse the Internet, to communicate with domestic robots, to play video games? I mean, you can uh, we can pretty well assume that this will be done. Mm -hmm. Could self-modification in the coming cybernetics era lead to a resurgence I thought about in the body horror genre, the kind of stuff we saw from Cronenberg, like the fly, Videodrome, the brood, where the threat is not so much that there's an external predator coming to get you, but there's a loss of your sense of autonomy, a loss of the sense of self, a transformation of the self into this non-human and otherwise unrecognizable abomination. Yeah, you see this externalization of the self, and then you begin to wonder, well, where do where do where do I actually end, and where does it begin? Yeah, and, and we already see shades of that uh, as our as our memory ends up. Uh, sort of offloading some of its capabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, we we no longer really need to know how to spell <laughs> even normal words in our everyday <laughs> yeah. usage because the machine is taking care of that. You know, in the same way that if you um, you're you're in a even a short-term relationship, but let's say a long-term relationship, and there are things that your spouse remembers or your, your partner remembers, but that you don't, and you yeah. end up so compartmentalizing. It's actually the, the same kind of mental uh, process going on there. Uh, right, sure. It's, it's going like, oh, Judy, I don't remember. You tell this story exactly. kind yeah. of thing. Right. That's a right. very good point. We we even plan for that, don't we? I mean, I feel like there are just some types of information I don't even try to remember because I know my wife Rachel will remember yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and everything else is just a keystroke away. I mean, it's a wonder we bother to remember anything. And so, so yeah, even though the 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 smartphone in our pocket isn't actually connected to our body, I mean, it becomes such a part of us. It becomes a part of our our working memory, even. Mm-hmm. So cybernetics, yeah, I, I see very good potential for that in the, the monsters of the future. It's, it's that crossover again, the mixing of categories. What's machine? What's human? That already terrifies people now that it's not even necessarily imminent for the mm-hmm. average person. I mean, when, when it is a common thing, who knows how scary this will be? Yeah. I mean, and we're all fundamentally cybernetic organisms. I mean, and I'm yeah. not necessarily talking about the fact that we a lot of us wear glasses or we have, you know, some sort of medical implant or, or what have you. But I mean, just on a very basic level, when 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 primitive humans picked up right, a stick yeah. or a bone club, uh, it, it updates their body schema. And in their mind, that bone club is becoming a part of their body, becoming a part of their arm. And so, I mean, you could make an argument that that's the earliest cyborg. I mean, we've been cyborgs for a very long time and anything else we do. Yeah, uh, yeah, digitally uh, is just icing on the cake. Uh, sure. Well, you know, kind of the same way that, that you feel a personal territory to your car when you're driving it. Like yes. it is, yeah. it becomes an extension of your body. And when someone moves too close to it, you get a little bit about it. This right. is something I was thinking about, re- not to go on a huge tangent, but I did a blog post on this because I was thinking about it in terms of gun ownership. Mm-hmm. Because of obviously gun ownership, yeah, big controversial issue, uh-huh. especially here in the States. People get very possessive of their, their firearms, and there's a lot of anxiety along, along the ideas of rights to have them mm-hmm. and the, the, you know, the, the bugbear of them being taken away. And I wonder, you know, when, you're, when one is using that, when one is comfortable with that weapon, 
they're updating into their body scheme. It's becoming a part of themselves. So does it become a, a type of dismemberment for that to be taken away from them? Huh. Anyway, that's about interesting. And also, I mean, speaking of Cronenberg and like Videodrome. That, oh, yes, yeah, the flesh indeed. gun came right out of him. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been talking about about the the brain. And I think that that's another really terrific uh, example of, of of how horror might go in the future through through the study of neuroscience. We haven't seen a lot of neuroscientific monsters out there yet, but but I think it has huge potential. Right. So we've been talking about technology mostly, how technology mm-hmm. affects the brain. But what about the research that's going to continue to be conducted in pure neuroscience itself? Just learning more about the relationship between the mind and the brain is that a cause for horror? Is there a monster somewhere in there? Well, we were talking earlier about about shadows and monsters. Is there room in the shadows for, for, for this particular brand of monster? And certainly there's plenty of room in the shadows when it comes to, to human consciousness and our mental processes. And, and you know, the more we learn, the more it, it seems as if our mind is just the, or just the, the, the shallow sunlit waters of a much deeper body. Yeah. And there, <laughs> there's plenty of darkness there with the, where there's, there's cognition going on that we don't really have access to. And then you start dissecting that apart, and you, you get into a whole discussion of free will. Are we actually choosing anything? Or are we just sort of uh, uh, have this? We're in this self delusion that we're, yeah. we're making all these choices for ourselves. Are we just these these chemical computers that are yeah. running out programs? Yeah. Well, I think people are already terrified of this idea, or I don't know if terrified is the right word, but they uh, at least many people are repulsed by the idea of determinism. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you hear this brought up in a philosophical conversation, some people find they seem to find it repugnant. Mm-hmm. They can't <laughs> deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, even myself, I, I've certainly covered it enough and, and read enough about it to where on a, on a level I, I pretty much agree with it. I say, yeah, I'm, I, I don't really think we have a lot of free will in our lives. I think yeah. we're, we're obeying our programming. We're obeying the, the, their environmental stimuli. But at the end of the day, that doesn't match up all that well with my experience of the reality. Right. And then I have to sort of fall back in into just thinking about it in the way, the way that we all do, that I'm making yeah. these choices and I'm deciding what I'm going to do. Uh, with this hour of free time, even though it's pretty much already been written. Right. I guess we can't get into a whole debate about determinism, compatibilism, and libertarian free will on this podcast. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's certainly a serious question and one that neuroscience, I think, does have something to say about. Uh, it's an, there. I think there are some people who are skeptical that neuroscience can offer anything on this question, but mm-hmm. I think it certainly can, especially if you, you find seats of consciousness and decision-making in the brain. Uh, we've talked on this podcast before, uh, not to keep referring to previous podcasts all the time, but we definitely have about uh, like recent, recent research that made it look like, oh, I wonder if the claustrum is the part of the brain that actually combines the various phenomena to create the sensation of consciousness. Are you saying there's a monster in the claustrum? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Probably. Yeah. Uh, And so, but the other question I would ask is that that definitely is a deeply scary idea that I think will resonate with people as the science becomes more and more popular and, and we get popular reporting on it. But what does the monster actually look like? What form does it take? Hmm. Well, you know, another another side to think about in terms of this is also memory and the fallibility of memory, false memories. Mm-hmm. Um, when you really start getting into that area, it gets a little scary because you start th- looking at your life and you're saying, well, my life is made out of these memories and how many of them are real? And when you start realizing that every time you reach back into the archives and you draw out that memory, you're actually changing it. Yes. Um, 
Uh, one one recent example that comes to mind on this is uh, the movie Oculus. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I have not, but I was just going to bring up the fact that I think that uh, some of the, the recent return to mirror and doppelganger horror mm-hmm. might have mm. something to do with the advances that we've been making in neuroscience. So yeah. Please go ahead. Because it's about you know ourselves and, and who we are. And Oculus, besides being just a bleak horror film uh i thought it was i thought it was well executed and it does some interesting things where it plays with memory with uh these two characters memory of a traumatic event and uh and and i thought it it, it dabbled in that in an effective way so in a, in a way even though it's dealing with a very old trope of the of the the haunted mirror uh it, it kind of is getting into a neuroscientific zone very cool. Totally. Yeah, I've been wanting to check it out. I will add that to my list of all of the movies that I apparently need to go see now. Yeah. Okay, so how about just straight up post-apocalyptic dystopia? The breakdown <laughs> of society. This is something that's really on people's minds. I noticed that There's so much common reporting about like about like are we at the end of this era of like like are we going the yeah. way of the Romans kind of stuff. Or even down just like at the at the Vox Populi level, uh YouTube comments. We make videos about the future. We make videos about the future and put them up on YouTube. And tons of comments are about, you know, just the coming dystopia, the end of the world, the apocalypse. People, This is popular. People are thinking about this idea a lot. What happens when society collapses because of, you know, politics or technology or social change whatever it is yeah and and there's so much there's so much popular media about zombies right now like right. i i think that robert and i we've had a little bit of a conversation in the just around the office before about how kind of tired we get of <laughs> zombies sometimes i am right there with you i discovered dawn of the dead when i was i think in my senior year of high school and i went through a brief phase where i was like zombie movies this is the best thing ever mm-hmm. and then i got so sick of them i couldn't <laughs> stand it anymore yeah i mean yeah you get kind of used to the taste and then you start trying different spiced versions of it to to try and stick with that diet but eventually you you kind of realize i don't know i think maybe i'm done with zombies i'd like to posit that i would i I never want to think about spiced zombies ever again (laughs) um Um, it is it is it is decorative gourd season you guys it's pumpkin spice zombies sorry okay please uh well anyway one thing i think i'd like to tie the the post-apocalyptic zombie genre into is cohen's thesis about desire oh indeed uh about how this is so it's sort of scary it's not a situation you'd actually want to be in but on the other hand you hear this a lot in the popular talk about zombies. People want that experience of blowing a zombie's head off with a shotgun. Oh, sure. I mean, it's being it's the experience of being able to destroy a human body with no consequences. Right. And and I I'm sure I just sounded like a terrible murderer right now when I said that. But but there, I mean, certainly amongst my friends, anecdotally, uh, there's almost a fetish, fetishization of that kind of post apocalyptic environment. We spend so many casual conversations talking about our roles in the post-apocalypse and like how we would get out of the city and and you know what kind of weapons we would use and and you know that yeah. kind of stuff it's huge and of course we'd all die they're oh, rather i swiftly. would be first yeah yeah no i'm useless in a post-apocalypse i'm a writer like what <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's uh it, I, I i totally agree though it is something we desire and uh and and even that that physical violence against the zombie we desire because it's a, it's a situation where we've we've simplified reality yeah. into a a vision where there's a definite right and a definite wrong there's yeah. dead and there's Re- undead remove the moral ambiguity yeah or there's living and there's undead i guess so there are the zombies <laughs> and there are us they are bad we are good if we see one of those we can use direct 
lethal violence against them and solve the problem. And because we live these lives where very little is black and white, right? You know, everything's gray. And then, you know, the, the the problems on the news are not so easily solved as a situation of we'll point a gun at the zombie's head and then the case is closed. So we desire that kind of simplicity. Um, I've heard it argued that the, the zombie horde coming at us is also uh, almost kind of a, a flow state kind of a fantasy because yeah. the zombies are easily dispatched one by one, and it's just a matter of getting in the flow of dealing with it. It's like a, a checklist that never ends, but we can definitely check things off that list. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's that immediate reward kind of thing, right? It's the it's the achievement unlocked. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. The flow state is the it's a continuous challenge, so you're never bored, but it's something you can do. Exactly. Right, you right. get it done. <laughs> so yeah, zombie apocalypse is kind of a flow state uh, fantasy, and and also it's a chance on on almost a kind of a more homey uh, sense. We're, we get a, it's a, it's a chance to sort of reconnect or at least fantasize about reconnecting with older modes of life. You know, suddenly you're, you're, you're actually living for yourself out there. You're not dependent on technology. You're picking food or growing food or at least scavenging for food. Yeah. You know, you're protecting the, 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 the loved one closest to you from this, uh, this very cut and dry horror. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that, that part of the popularity of zombie movies right now is also just a general like urbanization anxiety mm-hmm. in that we're, we're losing touch with those parts of, of ourselves as humans and losing touch with nature, uh, losing some of our individuality and freedom by being in these, in these stifling urban environments and also just being kind of sardine crammed into yeah. these inescapable and claustrophobic spaces. So do you guys think that we're that we're coming to an end of this fascination with zombies or do you think that we're we're just kind of riding the wave? Uh, I don't know. I thought we were kind of getting to the end of it a few yeah. years back and we keep going. So, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because it's something that I feel like people people are beginning to tire of. Actually, I mean, they're, they're catching on that this has been done a lot. But then again, it does continuously play on on these the, the zeitgeist, right, in ways mm-hmm. that we – I don't think we're done with this feeling yet in culture that there's there's something – we're domesticated. There's some kind of violent, primal existence we'd like to get back to. We still do desire this flow state with our kind of uh, stifling office jobs, not, not speaking about my own, <laughs> if my boss is listening. But, you know, the idea – and we're living in these urban spaces where there are so many people so close together in the same space – I can see this continuing to uh, to reach the feelings that 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 are still very popular. And yeah, I don't see going away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like you know, we as we discussed, the monster comes out of culture, and as yeah. long as it is culturally relevant, as long as there's something in the monster that fulfills our desires or helps us uh, process our fears, we're going to keep coming back to it, even if we. We don't like to admit. Wait, so do you think it's actually going away or not? I guess not. I mean, <laughs> it's it's going to be here. And, you know, yeah. uh, the good thing is that along the ride, so, some people are going to do something interesting with it. People yeah. are going to spice those zombies and uh, <laughs> and make them a little uh, more uh, palatable. Palatable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I certainly don't mean to say there are no good recent zombie movies. I, I, oh, I disavow no, no, no. that entirely. No, but... I'm still enjoying some some parts of the culture. Um, but. Another thing that I actually think zombies tap into uh, very deeply is our current anxiety around pandemic, yeah. uh, which is certainly with with the the recent Ebola outbreaks very uh, forefront in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I think this is also very much related to urbanization. Oh right, right. Pandemic, oh right. Because you come into the office, if one person's sick, it ends up half the office gets sick, or maybe every 
everybody gets sick. Mm-hmm. We're all in close spaces and we're all sharing germs. Mm-hmm. This didn't this wasn't always the case, right? I mean, this is a fairly recent thing in human history that we're cramming so many people together in such tight spaces. Oh, sure. Uh, also, there is, you know, just just as we discover more about how our bodies work and kind of how fragile they are and how many weird new diseases can kind of come out of, of nothing um, and, and be very serious. I yeah. mean, you know, I think that a lot of the recent interest in vampire horror kicking off in the 1980s was very much due to the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Uh, Fun fact, by the way, Francis Ford Coppola was working on a documentary about AIDS at the same time that he was putting together his film Bram Stoker's Dracula. That's interesting, especially considering that there are some strong arguments that Bram Stoker himself uh, wrote Dracula and and was uh, and became so obsessed with the the vampire uh, uh, motif because he himself may have been uh, suffering from syphilis. Oh, wow. And you see a lot of uh, shades of uh, especially um, the, the, the third final level of syphilis uh, in the vampire myth. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've talked a lot about the link between syphilis and vampires. Yeah, and stuff to play I, was, mind, I was really on syphilis for a while. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a fascinating <laughs> topic. Um, I, I, If you've been around me, uh, I've probably tried to convince you of it. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, but this is another one I can definitely see extending into the future and creating the monsters of tomorrow. They, they might be tiny monsters, germs. I mean, something that's hard to hard to to place put your finger on especially because it's especially frightening because a germ is mindless Mm -hmm. right it it chases you and 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 hunts you without knowing what it's doing so there's nothing to demonize you can't really argue with it yeah but also but there but it's that that boundary point can also come into play because in order to get the germ i mean one of the whole things uh, especially with syphilis and, and any uh, sexually transmitted disease is that there's kind of this moral zone to it because to acquire that that mindless uh, you know non-judging uh, entity you had to engage in activity that might uh, be uh, considered uh, uh, morally uh, you know apprehensive at sure, least that sure. others would judge you yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's that border patrol again exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and and also someone wrote in here, and I think it's a really terrific uh, uh, parallel. The, the 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 fly and the thing mm-hmm. um, from the early nineties, late eighties, eighties ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that kind of, of of body horror that was going on at the time that was very very much, I think, part of our anxiety about these diseases that we that we couldn't do a whole lot about. Oh yeah, yeah. I think definitely with Cronenberg's The Fly, I think that's a, a there's a there's a strong case to be made that there's a lot of uh, AIDS anxiety tied up in that one. Definitely. Mm-hmm. How about technological connectivity? I mean, this is something that I cannot see going away now. There mm-hmm. there are people talking about how we're going to get sick of Facebook and surveillance and stuff like that. I don't buy it at all. I think we are he- headlong and we're not coming back. Oh, yeah. I, I think that the, the deeply connected, digitally enabled networking that we're mm-hmm. experiencing now, it, we haven't even reached the peak yet. We're oh, not even close. Not, not even close, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I fantasize about leaving it all behind sometimes. Yeah. And then I remind myself rather quickly, oh, well, I have, I have to do it as part of my job. Right. Yeah. So there's no way I, can, I would have to leave this job and then to leave that behind. And then I have it's the way I connect with people. I know it's just we're. We've waded too far into that pool to yeah. really get out again. I, I think there's really no going back. I, I hate Facebook sometimes, <laughs> but then I realize that oh, without Facebook, I'd probably never talk to these dozen friends of mine who live in different cities. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, it it keeps you connected. It really does. Oh, sure, and, sure. And and you know, there there are some parts of it that are a little bit abhorrible, but but yeah. there's a lot of it that is 
very dear to me and that I would I would you know, I feel like I really am being enriched by seeing the photographs that they post and and, and reading about how their kids are doing or their dogs or, you know, whatever it is that it is. And it's great that all that social connection is is owned via a soulless corporation that that is intent on making profit. Right. And that occasionally turning your life into money. Yeah. 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 And that that occasionally does strange uh, uh, psychological studies on us. So that's really cool. But you can't really you you can't turn away from it because it. Yeah. You're. Your social connections are bound up in it. But if we accept the prediction that that this trend continues, we're only going to get more and more connected via these digital channels. What does this mean for our anxieties as a culture? And how does that turn into a monster? Or does it? Well, I think you know, monsters on Facebook, monsters on message boards. I mean, it's, it's easy to sort of <laughs> extrapolate it. Because, I mean, really, you encounter trolls already. And, uh, and you... On one level, you know that that is an actual person on the other side. Mm-hmm. And on the same level, you but at come least on, hope Robert, they're not human. Well, I know, and that's that's where it gets kind of interesting. I wonder <laughs> if that if the trolls of the internet, the, the the imposters of the internet, to what extent that becomes more and more of a thing. I mean, maybe I'm I'm mis- there's a there's actual maybe there's an actual recent example of this in horror uh, cinema that I'm 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 forgetting about, but it seems like that's. I feel like this could be part of the uh, return to the to the slasher and serial killer mm-hmm. uh, genres that we've been seeing a little bit lately. Because um, mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like that that dehumanizing that that dehumanized human is is very much a part of of our lives every day. I mean, it's it's why you know we all know not to read the comments except for those of us for whom that's that's our job. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> but. We get lots of really lovely comments. We, oh, no, no, no. You guys <laughs> specifically are upstanding uh, ladies and gentlemen and et cetera. And, uh, and we love every single one of you. But there, <laughs> there are many other people on the Internet who are not that curious and kind. No. So, yeah, maybe that thing. I can't help but wonder as we, you know, as, as we, we sort of lose our one-to-one social connections and we, we depend more and more on this uh, – on on Facebook and uh, and the internet in, in general to connect with people like maybe we end up having a, a more of a return to not only the slasher but like the straight up like Dario Argento hands strangling someone mm. uh, kind of uh, slasher uh, scenario not as much almost out of a, a desire to just be physically to touched, be in, con- you know? in contact oh, yeah oh yeah well uh, you mean as, as as a result of the fact that we're carrying on so many of our relationships not in person right mm-hmm. yeah that the, the you, you might be the, the pe- five people you're closest with maybe you don't even see them on a regular basis yeah so mm-hmm. maybe the sort of dark desire becomes well at least when i die let my murder hug me to death you know because <laughs> then at least i'll go out of this world with some human contact yeah, uh, I wonder if there could also be the exact opposite, where the, the horror is isolation. Hmm. I mean, people people are terrified now to be away from email, to mm-hmm. be away from Facebook. Not everyone, but mm-hmm. th- this is a common fear people report. I haven't checked my email in three hours. I have intense <laughs> anxiety about this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, so... and maybe that could even tie back into um, a, a, another thing, which I'm I'm sort of skipping around in our notes. But uh, but space exploration. Uh, certainly in the 70s ish, there was there was a lot of that horror of being isolated, literally in space on on a cold, yeah. dark ship somewhere. Mm-hmm. Even though space isn't cold, which we have discussed. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, and so maybe maybe we'll see more of that. Yeah, definitely. There's always room in, in the uh, in the world of isolation for the monster because uh, yeah, that's the the realm where your mind turns on itself uh, and uh, begins to devour itself. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of of human contact, uh, I think I think parenthood 
is a trope in horror cinema that we are certainly not done with. Yeah, I think there are several facets to this. Number one is going to be something more related to the the, the cybernetics we already talked about, because I think mm-hmm. we're seeing we, we've already seen, at least in America, I think largely a, a medicalizing of birth. Mm-hmm. It, it's become it's a hospital event. It's associated with health it's an industry yeah. and technology mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. And and I think as technology intrudes more and more on on birth, that's something that really does make people uncomfortable because birth. I mean, it's one of the the most intensely emotional experiences that humans have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel very strongly about it. And now we've got things coming up like what about the, the idea of the artificial uterus? Oh, yeah. That yeah. You can allow a fetus to gestate w- without putting it in a human body. Yeah. Actually, one of the the only scenes, um, uh, one of the most visually arresting scenes for me in The Matrix was that scene where where Keanu Reeves is born in that goo bath. And it's and it's and it's actually really quite horrific. Like not a whole lot in that movie is very scary. But that that kind of stuck with me. True. I mean, there's certainly a lot of room for for horror there. But uh, but on the other hand, there's there's a lot that we easily get used to. Like, I can't help but think back to like Newsweek and Time covers about the, the test tube baby, the age of yeah. the test tube oh, baby yeah. is coming. And now we live in the age of the test tube baby. And it's generally not that big of a deal. Uh, yeah. I feel the same. It's going to be the same with uh, with human cloning. You know, it's it's still remains a bit of a bugbear. But as uh, as we work out the kinks, as it becomes more of a reality, as it becomes a, a reproductive uh, choice, then, you know, we're going to realize it's it's not, uh, uh, you know, reaching into the void and or anything. It's something ultimately grounded in biological reality. Yeah. Oh, man, I've got another one. I can't believe I didn't put this in the notes, but genetic modification of humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, genetic engineering of humans is something that I think will be very much related to the the birth horror, the the scariness of what you're creating this child. You know, do you do you tamper with nature? Yeah. 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 Uh, And maybe that's also part of what we were seeing in in like in Prometheus with um, the abortion squid. Yeah. And um and and all of that kind of stuff, I mean I mean of course all of the alien movies are very much about birth and then they've got a very feminine mystique kind of thing going on. But yeah, with genetic modification, with just body modification in general, you you get into that scenario. At what point do you go too far? At what point yeah. are you is it are you are you becoming less human or more human? And uh, and both of course are their own shade of monstrous. Uh, the idea of genetic modification also I mean it touches several of Cohen's theses actually. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's the idea about policing the borders. It's scientifically possible. There's also the idea of mixing of categories because a lot of times when you're talking about creating transgenic organisms, you're talking about taking a gene from one organism and placing it in another. That's why you read these stories about how. Uh, you had these tomatoes that were genetically modified to uh, resist frost because they had a fish gene implanted. Mm-hmm. In oh, them. well, those are Frankenstein tomatoes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> People were extremely upset about this. And if you uh, if you ask them, I remember there was some poll I read about where people thought that these tomatoes would taste fishy. <laughs> they they believed there was some kind of inherent essence of fishiness mm-hmm. that would come along to the tomato with that isolated frost resistance gene. And so I wonder if the same kind of thing could happen if we, we say, oh, there's a gene we can take from some other animal that will prevent uh, perhaps some sort of uh, birth defect or, or health problem or something like that if we put it in a human embryo. And so let's just go ahead and do that to be safe. Does that bring some kind of scary animal essence with it? Or are you crossing the category line between human and beast? And uh, kids are already terrifying, as we know. So if we have these genetically modified kids. Uh, 
I, yes, I don't yeah. I don't mean to actually say that I'm terrified of that, but I think that could be something that catches on in the popular consciousness oh, no, no, for ab- the creation absolutely. of monster uh, imaginations of monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the uh and the idea of genetically augmenting ourselves kind of gets back into the uh, the idea of cybernetics as well because yeah. of our earlier ideas about about cyborgs it really had to do with space exploration and, and yeah. the possibility of changing the human body to uh to to better adapt to travel in space exploration in space and ultimately reaching other worlds uh because you know we 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 inevitably always come back around to the idea of well let's change space to to meet our biological needs let's Mm -hmm. change uh you know we're gonna we're gonna take a bubble of our own atmosphere in our own world up there into the orbit and if we get to another planet well we want to change that too right we want to terraform that into something different something more earth-like but the other side of the argument is why do we not change ourselves why don't we, we figure out what works from a biological standpoint for space travel, and then we we adapt to meet that. And then when the age comes that we finally make it to other worlds, maybe it's a little bit of terraforming and a little bit of the uh, of the genetic augmentation and the cybernetic mm-hmm. augmentation of the human form. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that in our episode about uh, what the what what humans will look like in the future. Oh yeah, and... there was that controversial article, right? Mm-hmm. What was it? I think a couple of people, came, they drew some pictures of what they guessed humans would look like in the future. And, uh, you know, yeah, like 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 100 years or 100,000 years. And, yeah. and they got increasingly anime looking uh, with these <laughs> with these very large, shiny eyes and giant foreheads. Yeah. And, but the, I think they reasoned that the reason that you would have huge eyes is to use less energy in places that are dark. If you just have larger pupils, you can resolve images more with rods less and cones yeah yeah and that we would specifically have genetically modified ourselves in order to do that um and but but i'm you know as we spoke about in the in in that conversation i'm not sure if we will ever get over that bodily horror enough to want to do it but but i think it's absolutely something that that people are going to be playing with in in uh, through monsters yeah okay i got one more big one to ask about okay what about the supernatural, because most of what we've discussed about, and this is probably by virtue of trying to predict future monsters based on the trends technology. we see coming in technology. Yeah. So it might just be a function of our categories. But we have been focusing mostly on materialist kinds of monsters, robots, cybernetics, etc. Is there a place in the future for good old fashioned spirits and ghosts and wraiths and, you know, these vengeful otherworldly creatures? I, I would say... There has to be because there still come trends of these kind of things today. For the past six or seven years, I'd say there has been a craze in the movies for demon possession and exorcism movies. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this reflects largely an expanded belief in demon possession in the general population, but it does mean something. It reflects some kind of thing in the popular consciousness that's, that's just represented by this demon possession. Oh, I think that that with the the possession tropes specifically, um, it, it's relating to a lot of the um, uh, spiritual versus science anxieties that that our our global culture is going through right now. Yeah, I mean, there's the idea popularized by uh, by Carl Sagan that that science is a, a candle in the demon haunted world, you know, illuminating the darkness. And uh, until science reaches the point where you have absolute illumination, which it's you know arguably it will never reach that point. Arguably, there are always right. going to be some shadows remaining, and therefore there are always going to be some spaces for the demons to haunt us, for the monsters to haunt us, and for the supernatural to uh, to exist, at right. least as a, an idea. 
Yeah, I I don't see the supernatural monster going away. I hope not, because ghosts are my favorite. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Mine too. I find them, of all the monsters, I find regular old ghosts the scariest. Hmm. Oh, I find them the scariest, but I also find them the most um, uh, palatable. Uh, not spiced, but but palatable. Yeah, um, <laughs> more in, palatable than zombie flesh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> certainly. Um, but 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 I'm also um genuinely disturbed by a lot of um uh serial killer kind of like the hostile sort of genre. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm genuinely upset by it. I'm not horrified. I'm just grossed out. And yeah. and why did they make this? Yeah, yeah. Like like this is this is actually not fun to watch. Yeah. Um, so well, those and, are, those tend to not even be monster movies. Though. Yeah, they're just about. Oh sure. Yeah. Why waste our time talking about torture movies? That's <laughs> that's not in our arena. Here. Now, if you have a monster in there somewhere, then you have my attention a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. You know, we'll see how it all plays out. But, yeah, I think that this has been such a fun discussion. Thank you so much, Robert, for yeah. coming oh, and thanks. joining this us. Great. Yeah. We have really enjoyed having you. I yeah, this has been a fun, fun conversation. Yes. yes. I enjoyed having you. <laughs> now you say it, Lauren. <laughs> I enjoyed having you as well. Oh, thank you. Huzzah. Um, <laughs> um, if you have also enjoyed this discussion, let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Plus. Our handle is generally FW thinking, uh, or, you know, search the Googles for us. You'll find us. Uh, you can also email us at fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Uh, we hope that we will hear from you. And either way, we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. 
Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.